Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. If VR becomes mainstream, I won't ever play a game on a monitor again because it is just that unreal and it's just that awesome. More about how roleplay is being advanced with virtual reality later on in the show. Welcome to Text Message. I'm Nate Langson. First, some news. And joining me, Mr. Ian Morris, venerable regular co-host and journalist. Hello. According to Victoria Ward, writing on The Telegraph this week, Wimbledon spectators have been warned not to record the tennis on their mobile phones amid concerns about broadcasting rights to the hugely lucrative event. The All England Lawn Tennis Club has also banned selfie sticks, or what I like to call elongated ego rods, (laughs) which extend to up to about 40 inches and have a smartphone perched on the edge. Now, the sticks are apparently considered a nuisance, and I'm still quoting here from the Telegraph, as well as being a potential weapon could interfere with spectators' enjoyment. Now, I do take issue with the idea of selfie sticks being considered a weapon, Um, but it did give us consideration to talk about Periscope, and apparently the AELTC, that's the All England Lawn Tennis Club uh, acronym, uh, insisted that the guidance concerning live streaming apps such as Periscope was simply an extension of the usual rule that mobile phones must be switched off, quote, in and around the courts in play so i put it to you ian is the aeltc fair in its ban or at least its proposed ban on the likes of periscope and live streaming in the british sport well it just feels like a complete waste of time doesn't it because no matter how much you ban it you're never going to stop people from doing it are you really um and I have no sympathy for anyone involved in this, really. I have no sympathy for people at the All England Lawn Tennis Association or whatever they're called, um, because I think it's a ridiculous rule to impose. But I also have no time for people who sit at events, be they tennis matches or concerts, um, and watch the whole thing through their phone screen. I just think you've paid all that money to go. What the hell is wrong with you? Watch the damn thing. Enjoy the experience but, of it. I mean, it, it's fair to say, I think, that in this modern age... Things do not exist and have not ever existed unless they have been recorded on a phone. Unless you can tell somebody on Facebook in visual terms that you have done something, you may as well not have done it. Well, that's an interesting take. Uh, I personally don't live like that, but then I'm old, so maybe the youngsters do feel that way. Um, There's a lot of stuff I don't have a record of, you know, I don't you know, take a picture of a lot of things. I don't take a picture when I go to a toilet or, you know... There um, is an app for that, you know. Pe- people generally... Yeah. Is there, uh, pe- people people generally don't document most of... No, that's not true, is it? Most people do document most of their meals. But at the same time, you know, what's what's a, a short stream on Periscope going to do for anyone? I mean, you've seen the sort of stuff that turns up on Periscope. It's hardly high quality, is it? It's So what does it matter if someone streams 10 minutes of a match, an exciting 10 minutes? You know, it... 
it's just not a problem. It's on TV at that precise minute anyway. The question I pose to you before we leave this topic in the ground here, in is whether you think that there is a genuine risk to um, a broadcaster posed by Periscope or, or, for that matter, any other live streaming video platform? No. As simple as that. <laughs> yeah, because the quality's rubbish. It's a tiny little video stream, you know, shot by an idiot with no ability to keep the camera still. It po- possibly it's a portrait video, which I don't want to watch, or a square. You know, I mean, I, th- th- we spent years coming up with HD and making it look amazing. Uh, the last thing I want to do is look at a, a weird little square of video on a phone. Um, I mean, Periscope is hilarious at the best of times. I don't think I've ever managed to see a, a Periscope happen. People are, t- you know, tweet, oh, we're doing a Periscope now. And by the time I've got on it, it's finished. I know you can rewatch them now, but even so, the, the thing is a joke. I, I don't, I just don't see it as any sort of a threat until people are rocking up at Wimbledon with a tripod, a broadcast camera, and some you know like amazing five G streaming tech that's able to put it online at four K. This isn't a threat to anyone, is it? It's just people doing what people do. And if you go to one of these events and start streaming stuff and annoy people around you, well, you're an arse hat, aren't you? Yeah, absolutely. But they're everywhere. Maybe the likes of Periscope should be giving a backhand to the sponsors to cover the thing are we are we at breaking point though that is the question i pose for listeners um do let us what you what you think podcast as well podcast at what (laughs) sorry podcast (laughs) at natelikeson.com let us let us know right well let's keep this news volley going let's talk about a story that was on wired.co.uk this week mayor of london mr boris johnson has said that mini cab drivers may have to take a paired back version of the knowledge test which famously must be undertaken by the city's black taxi drivers in order to operate in the capital quote tfl are currently consulting on a proper geographical test so you can't drive a minicab in london unless you know one end of the city from the other boris told an audience at the state of london debate there will have to be basic geographical knowledge there would have to be basic english basic command of the english language i don't think that's an unreasonable thing do you i think that is perfectly reasonable now that's is according to Katie Collins of Wadukud UK, who is writing up this story. And of course, this relates to Uber, which is the bane of many taxi driver lives. And so I dragged her into the studio to ask her what is going on, what is Boris really proposing, and what does this mean for the capital's taxi system? Well, what Boris says is wrong with Uber, I don't think is is necessarily what he thinks deep down. What he's saying is wrong with Uber is, in fact, he's kind of insulted them and called them a brash internet American company coming over and disrupting the market in this country. And I don't necessarily think that that is what he genuinely believes. You know, a lot of uh, American companies come over here and operate as do British companies abroad and I don't necessarily think that that is the problem but w- what he's what he's essentially trying to do is um, appease the taxi drivers the black taxi drivers in London and make them make it seem like he is sympathizing with them um, and I think there are ways that he could have done that which perhaps would have been more practical and you know he doesn't necessarily need to tell them that he 
doesn't like Uber and doesn't like innovation and new business models coming in, I think what he should be telling them instead is that rather than kind of trying to shift the blame onto new models is that he should be encouraging TfL to innovate from within and to ensure that the black taxi drivers of London have got the power to compete in this kind of new economy that's that's sprung up around Uber and the the minicab um, industry in general. Let's talk a little bit about what Boris has suggested Uber should be doing, which is almost like a mini the knowledge test. Like he seems to think that it is unfair that taxi drivers have to go through a very strict process of learning, you know, thousands of, of routes and street names and everything around London in order to get a black cab, whereas a company can come in and use technology to make that irrelevant and operate and still have the same uh, experience as far as a customer's concerned. So what is it that he thinks Uber should be doing? Well, this is quite an interesting one because he says that what he's announced is that he would like Uber to take a knowledge-like test for all of its drivers. It would like to apply this to kind of a, a, as an entry test, as as it were, to the minicab industry in London. Um, um, but he's being he's what he's not doing is being very clear about what he actually means by that. So he, when pressed, he said, "Oh, they will have to show that they have a basic grasp of the English language, and they will have to show that they know more than left from right and this kind of thing." But at the same time, what he said that is that it won't be the knowledge or an equivalent test to the knowledge, because he believes it's important that black taxi drivers exclusively have this in order to retain what makes them special and um, to show that they have some kind of uh, superiority, I guess, over Uber drivers in, and minicab drivers in the city. So he, what, what he's doing is, is sending out very mixed messages here. Mixed me messages coming from Boris Johnson. Shocker. Um, I mean, I know what you mean, though. I, I think that it's it's a move that um, is relevant to us because obviously the black cab industry in London is if not unique, it's certainly very special. And it has both an aesthetic appeal that is almost um, of value tourism-wise than anything else, kind of like the yellow cabs in, in New York. And the, But the fact is, is that they are not, as we've talked about in this show and many other shows in the past, th the problem is that they haven't innovated fast enough. But the industry does need to be supported. If it's going through a transition, there needs to be a support. This apparently is a, is support. And at least with this one... It's not flat out, let's just ban Uber. Like he's accepted, we can't ban a company from coming in and doing something innovative, but maybe we could try and soften the blow. I mean, do you even think, just, just on, the, on the last point, do you think this is something that could work? Well, it's it's interesting that you should say that because what Boris has said about Uber is is not that you know he doesn't want to ban them. He's he's said to the black taxi drivers of London, I can't ban them because they'll just come in and they'll overturn it and within a day that will be irrelevant so this is like I said this is a thing that he's doing to try and appease them whereas I th and rather than doing that I think they would Boris and TfL if they want the black taxi drivers of London to remain an important part of London's transport infrastructure which you know many would argue they sh is, is something that should happen and they should be protected their jobs should be protected etc is that they would invest that time rather than attempting to perhaps regulate the minicab industry more is to reassess whether putting all this stock in in the knowledge is is 
really relevant in this day and age when we have such you know we have tools like google maps perhaps the the four years or, or whatever it is that they spend studying for the knowledge perhaps that isn't necessary perhaps it could it would be more useful to 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 do something else instead is this the, is this basically the minicab equivalent of don't teach kids long division because they'll all have calculators anyway um some might say that it is and I don't think that anyone would argue that having... having Good, I don't want anyone to argue with me. <laughs> having that basic level of knowledge there, and perhaps not the knowledge level of knowledge, but a level of knowledge, is always going to be a good thing because there's there's going to come a time when um, the, the taxi drivers will need to know, you know, little alleyways or they will need to know West London from East London. and um, But at the same time... and. Uh, and actually saying that a lot of people have complained that Uber drivers don't know where they're going and they've had to direct them a lot of the time, which they find quite irritating. Well, this morning, and I mean this quite literally, I put a Dyson in an Uber and sent it to Bromley, which is the other side of London from Ealing where I live. Well, I think this is, a, again, part of the problem. You know, we are looking at a at a, an industry here where, where Uber has come in and provides Londoners actually with services that they really genuinely need, you know, being able to summon a taxi in an obscure part of London is not necessarily that easy and hasn't been that easy up until now. And obviously the, the competitive pricing is a, is a difficulty for the taxi drivers and, and they can't, they've struggled to compete with that. But um, in order to be be able to provide Londoners with the services that they need and and rather than sort of something that's happened to me a few times and I've tried to get a black cab in the centre of London is they've said no sorry sorry love we're not going there and that's that whereas I've never got into an Uber and said oh I'm going here and 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 had somebody tell me oh no that's not happening um and you know I, th- I think payment options like being able to pay by Oyster and uh, being able to access a black cab when you need one I think it, there's there's got to be a, some more emphasis from from within in, in helping the black taxi drivers innovate. Well, Apple Pay will be arriving in London in a matter of weeks. Well, I say London, the whole of the UK in a matter of weeks. And my new rule is if I can't book and pay for a taxi using only my wrist, you are getting none of the nature money i would say that that is a fair assessment and you know we are moving towards that there's no question about it you and i nate we're innovators well not innovators but we're early adopters in this well you can read katie's story on wider.co.uk if you search boris uber i'm sure it is there thank you for having me nate well coming up in just a few moments we are going to jump into a very interesting feature now this is a little bit different for text message this week we're going to talk about role play now this is not the stuff that you do uh, horizontally in uh, or indeed in any uh, position I- i'm not here to judge um, with your loved ones no this is to do with gaming fantasy characters and whatnot now why are we talking about this on a uh, on a grown-up podcast well there's very good reason and it involves virtual reality and it involves modern video gaming trends and i thought it is high time that we introduce everyone to what's going on in this rather unusual and growing subculture of video gaming don't touch that knob That was a radio pun. I wasn't being filthy. Not everyone in the world is as beautiful as you, dear listener, and not everyone knows how to download a podcast. That's why I'm encouraging you to bring someone you know into the podcasting world by telling them about this show 
and which app you use to listen to it. You'll be helping not only me and text message, but all podcasters who often need word of mouth more than money to help promote their work. Thanks for listening and hopefully thanks for the review and the help spreading the word. Or if you want to be on the show, send your comments about this episode or any other tech topic. Podcast at natelangson.com. To many, if not most adults, the term roleplay probably invokes mental images of a bedroom, costumes, and a lovely bottle of wine. In the world of video games, roleplay, or RP, may still involve that. But there'll be virtual costumes and characters you've written your own backstory for, and wine in a tavern that serves as a hub for other roleplayers to meet. Fantasy make-believe and live, scripted or unscripted fanfiction in action. It's been taking place for years, decades in fact, if we broaden things to include more than just video games. But the advent of virtual reality and devices like the Oculus Rift are getting some role players very excited indeed. It's something that fascinates me, and indeed I'm myself finding myself increasingly involved in it. So I wanted to dig a little under the surface with a frequent video game role player and technology fan to find out what defines RP and how it's evolving as a culture. Roleplay in its traditional sense is, it's fundamentally simple, right? You are in the role of a character. This is Knight's Knight, a role player, fantasy writer, and frequenter of RP events within the Elder Scrolls Online. Of a character, or you're in, um, kind of like in your head, imagination-wise, like say, on a table, Dungeons and Dragons, playing out a story uh, based on upon a character that you've created kind of like on paper um that's fundamentally the simplest form i can think of it's like you are in the role of a character and you are playing those actions out and it's it's sort of the adults equivalent of what we do as kids right where you are it's kind of make-believe and your your group of friends as children are um sort of imagining themselves in these scenarios it's like that but in a grown-up adult setting Correct. Yeah, it's like you've been doing it basically forever, even if you're not even aware of it. Um, I like to think everyone is a fan of role play because everyone has done it. You know, whether it's to adults in a bedroom or on computer or even like back in the day when everything was just kind of like in the forums. You know, text to speak or not text to speak, but you know. I'm um, just in text. Yeah. And it's a lot about the conversation. If if you've got somebody who believes they are a character in a particular world and you believe you are a character in a particular world and you're both familiar with that world's background or law or history or stories, then it becomes very interesting for you to be able to make up a conversation between those those two characters. Um, so that brings us on to sort of the, the bulk of what we wanted to I wanted to talk about today, which is how this is evolving with video games and and later on in the conversation we'll talk about virtual reality and and things like that um, but i wondered if you could give us an explanation of how these sorts of scenarios translate into modern video games uh, particularly obviously with massively multiplayer online role-playing games that people heard of like elder scrolls online world of warcraft things like that the games are known for being uh story-based but between non-player characters npcs and battles and things like that it's less known that there's an entire uh cultural 
uh, product, if you like, that exists within these games of just people using the games themselves as a fantasy background to role play with other people in those worlds. I wondered if you could explain a little bit about how that works. Okay, well, first, I like to think as us role players as like the ideal consumer for game developers because we kind of create your own content, right? When you're a role player in a game, um, you are taking... Basically, you are writing the story for yourself, right? You're taking control of a character. Um, you have molded them. You have named them. You have uh, shaped their backstory. And you set them in this persistent world that is um, full, like you said, the lore. And there are other people in there. I mean, thousands of other people. And you just kind of like get together and you act out these characters' actions. And it's kind of like a story right there's progression there's character growth and um you act that out in a role play sense with other people via you know text but i mean you can now see them right so not everything's in your head so you have the graphics engine um you're doing emotes which are um player actions that like say you know you wave to somebody else they can see it or you sit down or you can even pull out like an elder scrolls a stringed instrument and play a tune i mean there's so much more that you can do than um, as a traditional roleplay sense, people think Dungeons and Dragons. Um, it's much more visual and immersive. Uh, I would like to think in the modern games. And and the Dungeons and Dragons background is you know it's board based and and there are tabletop RPGs where it's done with dice. So there's a, an element of randomness to how some of the uh, characters and uh, stories play out. Um, but I wondered, I mean, th- there will be people listening who are probably intrigued by the fact that this sort of world of fantasy and make-believe is something that adults and, and you know, thousands upon thousands of thousands, if not millions of people um, globally are involved in these things now. They're probably wondering what it is that that makes this appealing to to grown-ups to do you know and 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 maybe you're the you're the best person to answer that as an adult who does this what is it that attracts you to doing this within a video game environment um the attractiveness uh, i guess uh, the way that it attracts me is that i'm not confined to the developer's original idea in their head right i can mold my own experience i don't need to go to point a to point b I mean, they give you this whole open world, and to me, the attractiveness of that is being really able to mold it to your liking, and just from a point of, uh, I like to write, so you can really get into your creative side and express that. Yeah. So that brings us on to the core part of what I wanted to talk about today, which is obviously how technology is helping this this trend well it's not a trend it's something's been around for decades but this this culture develop it went from board games and uh, pen and paper text-based stuff into video games and video games have got much more advanced with graphics and as you say the worlds are incredibly rich so that makes it very attractive to be in but even if with even bigger monitors better graphics at the end of the day there's only so far you can be immersed in a video game when the technology is effectively standing between you that's changing with virtual reality with the likes of oculus rift and with some of the other headsets that are coming out sony has recently announced one for the playstation 4 there's the htc there is valve's involvement um I, w- I know this is something you are a massive fan of i know you have an oculus rift and so how do you think vr is going to take this 
activity this this passion uh, that people have for for role playing into the next into the next level oh i think it's gonna it's gonna take it all the way because I, I i can tell you right now the experience in the virtual reality headset is like nothing i've ever had before it is like you're literally there like i try to explain to people um what it's like and i remember just watching youtube videos right and i was like ah oh, they're just overreacting but no it's like it is that exciting you are there and it feels real and i can totally see this being um huge with rpgs and role play games and um with the uh you throw in something called leap motion where you can actually control the hands of a character and the head motion i mean you're you're basically the character at that point so i mean it's it's going to be totally unreal and i know there are a few concepts already out there like uh, i think it's like a 3d chat game um, where you control an avatar and uh, other people are in there so it is multiplayer in a sense but everything's kind of text and then uh, they have another one like a movie theater right so you sit down in a movie theater and other people are in there with you and you can all talk and watch a movie it's as if you're there and it's like pretty unreal and you and i are both very big fans of the game elder scrolls online um this is something that that for me even if it's not about role play the the attraction of vr when you're trying to be as immersed as you possibly can in a game this is now something that's feeling much more than a fad you know this is this is something that really could benefit every player of some of these super immersive games like it doesn't have to just be about um about role play and i personally find it incredibly exciting to think that this is something that is on the brink of uh being able to be to be real to have a headset and be inside a world like elder scrolls oh i'll tell you right now if vr becomes mainstream i won't ever play a game on a monitor again if the game (laughs) supports it of course because it is just that unreal and it's just that awesome all right well let's um let's take it as as an assumption that there are people listening who had no idea about rp but do like video games and they're keen to think how do i get into being getting into rp where do i start what's kind of this can you give us some some tips on how people should find out more about getting involved in video game rp what should they do first to, to get started um, first, I would say dip your toes a little bit in roleplay itself. Um, I advise just kind of Google, right? Pull up your Google, uh, type in, you know, forum roleplay. And it'll give you websites that you can go to and join in, uh, kind of like a persistent story. I'll buy, you know, on a forum, so you're typing everything out. And then once you kind of get the format of how people talk, it's the same as they would talk in the game, except now... You have this avatar that you can control with your actions and your speech and uh, then move on to the game and then each game will have their own kind of like dedicated websites. Uh, So for Elder Scrolls Online, it's tso-rp.com. You can go there and it's a whole roleplay community where people can help you out, point you in the right direction to get you in game with the guild or what have you. Knights Knight from the ESO RP podcast. Thank you very much. No problem. Thank you for having me.
Well, Ian Morris is still with us, and it is time to talk about some of your feedback from last week's show. Now, Ian and I had a bit of a rant about the price of 3D cinema, not strictly speaking, just about the cost of getting into the theatre, but the fact that once I entered the cinema one week or so ago uh, for a 3D showing of Dino Land or whatever the hell that was, um, I then had to reverse my course, go out and pay for some damn 3D glasses. Now, I liken this to saying it was like going for a meal and then being charged for the cutlery. And we had an email from Alex Walker, who was one of the few people who emailed in about this. And Alex said, who'd expect to have to buy a laser gun when you go to Laser Quest? What about a helmet when you go karting? Balls for bowling. They're all essential for participating in the entertainment, but you'd never expect to be charged. Now, Alex continues, I assume the reason they don't like the deposit and return model is that people would try and steal or collect up other glasses to return them or something. I think that's crazy, though. They're virtually disposable. Now, he pointing to something that you mentioned also last week, that these glasses cost a very, very small amount of money. So it, it seems Alex is in a, a agreement with you there, Ian. Yeah, well, I mean, I, it was a reasonable point I made, I thought. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, it's, it's probably less than 5p, isn't it, in the kind of volumes they're made. So really, they could just suck it up, couldn't they? Alex actually also pointed out, he asked why I didn't talk about the disaster at Alton Towers, the, the big crash during the um, rollercoaster segment last week. Uh, the reason being that that interview was actually planned prior to the accident uh, happening at Alton Towers. And the other thing was that um, the interview was nothing to do with Alton Towers and I didn't want to get into a non-technical debate about the roller coaster crash when I was specifically talking um, to somebody who didn't actually have anything to do with it. I thought better to swerve that whole thing um, entirely and just talk about roller coasters in general. So a bit of an editorial decision there. Um, and that is why we didn't talk about that. Now, another email has come in from Simon, who also uh, was listening to the conversation about cinema intently by the sounds of it. And he wanted to share his thoughts on 3D cinema. Um, he actually hates the detrimental effect the glasses have on screen brightness and colour. He says his wife and him um, never see films in 3D now unless maybe they're shot for IMAX. But he says the other issue is the standard of cinemas in general these days, particularly the big change. There's a total lack of respect for the experience. You, uh, He says, I mentioned the choice of stains at our local cinema he says we have our selection of torn chairs both on the part of the cinema and audience it's a vicious circle cinemas are seen to scam and not care about the customer therefore the audience treats it more like their living room rather than say the theater and he says unless there's a film we really want to see big we wait for blu-ray if we split the cost of that between us we'll have seen the film for cheaper than our local cinema and if we like it now if we like it we now own it um so I you know I think that that's um, that's a fair point and it's certainly one that I I tend to side on as well which is I'd rather pay the same amount and you know own the download or own the blu-ray in in Simon's case um than anything else um what what what's your view and we didn't actually talk about how much you go to the cinema and what's your what's oh, your preference well I mean I've got two kids so almost never um I mean it's just very difficult but because if you factor in the cost of going to the cinema some snacks babysitter blah 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 all that kind of stuff it just becomes so unbelievably expensive it's just not worth it um, I would be more inclined probably to go on my own, maybe, you know, to go during the day when it's quiet, because I've obviously I work, I work at home, so I can, you know, if I fancied taking some time out of my day to do that, I could. But um, no, I think, to be honest, I've, I've my home cinema is good enough that I don't feel the need particularly to go to the cinema. Mm. I, I, I do miss it sometimes. There is something about the cinema that's, you know, usually quite good. I do remember once I... Um, 
when Scream first came out in the cinemas, it was it was around Halloween, and we saw it, you know, in a student town with lots of sort of slightly tipsy students, um, and it was a really good film experience of the sort that you know you don't mind too much if it's a bit sort of if people are making a fuss in a film like that because it's kind of part of the fun. Um, but whereas the rest of the time, I just I really like it when people just shut the hell up and let me watch my film and don't look at their phones and don't talk. I agree. Well, the last note that I wanted to mention briefly here is uh, we had another one come in from Tom who said, well, firstly, he he agreed with previous comments here that we've had here that uh, he doesn't watch anything in 3D because of the main reason being the lenses are dirty and darker and he spends more time taking them off and on again through the non-3D bits for, for him to care about that. But um, funny you should mention price because I, I'm slightly envious here of Tom because he said... I just thought I'd boast that my closest cinema charged £3.95 a ticket on Tuesdays. And he says that there's a supermarket next door and so he can get his popcorn there. Four quid to see a film. Now, if, if films were four quid, I'd probably see three times as many of them. Yeah. yeah. Um, the way cinema pricing works is very weird, though. And, you know, it's it's a difficult thing to get your head around because a lot of the pricing is tied up with in the first couple of weeks, all of the money a cinema makes on ticket sales goes directly to the film distributor. So the cinema doesn't make any profit until the first two weeks are done. And then it's only then that it starts to get a cut of that film's revenue. Um, so it, it, there is, it's not as easy to judge the cinemas as you might think. But mm. that said, they don't do themselves any favours by charging nine squillion pounds for a bag of rubbish popcorn. Podcast at NateLangston.com is where you can send your thoughts on other parts of the show. Thank you again to Night's Night and do check out ESO RP if you are curious about that side of the podcasting world. Thanks also earlier on, of course, to Katie Collins and my regular co-host, Mr. Ian Morris, for his input too. Do please keep continuing to give us reviews on iTunes. We're over 60 reviews now, over 65 star reviews, which is just amazing. Um, I continue to be eternally grateful for the reviews and the attention that you guys give uh, and, and, and your help in spreading the word about the show. Please tell your friends, your enemies, your colleagues, your loved ones. Hell, go and stand nude in the street and just yell it out and let's see what happens. And let us know what happens. Podcast at natelangston.com. Don't injure yourself. Don't put yourself at risk. But everyone loves a naked screamer. Um, until next week, thank you for listening. I once went to a cinema and bought um, so much pick and mix that the girl behind the counter went, this is going to be really expensive. And I was like, yeah, I don't care. And I didn't, but it was really expensive. It was like, I could have got drunk for that kind of money, which, yeah, it's a, uh, it's a lot of money. I think it was about 30 quid, actually. It was a massive bag. It lasted weeks. Like, we didn't get, we didn't get through it in the cinema. It was, we brought back with us and... Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.